Well, the Rock of Gibraltar, have you heard of it? You could more like it, you know, call it a mountain, but it looks quite literally like a huge rock. It's about 1,400 feet tall, and it towers over the southwestern tip of Spain, uh, right on the coast there, although technically it's a part of the UK still. But if you know where Europe and Africa come together, and they almost touch right at the mouth of the Mediterranean Sea, on the European side is the Rock of Gibraltar. And uh, I've been there at least, or I've sailed past it on a Mediterranean cruise back in, in high school. It certainly does tower domineeringly over the sea, and since you can't really avoid sailing past it, it's been used as a fortress for centuries to control passage into and out of the Mediterranean. Whoever controlled Gibraltar controlled the Mediterranean. And it's not like a, a hill that you can run up and, and take over. It's surrounded by sheer cliffs with razor-sharp limestone, and it was quite a formidable rock, a fortress. No one could capture the rock of Gibraltar. No one could assail it. And for this reason, it became known as the Invincible Rock, the rock which no one could, could take over. And thinking about natural wonders like this, it's no surprise to us to find such rock imagery in the Bible. Now, I know the biblical writers weren't thinking about Gibraltar when they used their rock imagery, but Israel is no stranger to massive mountains and sheer cliffs and staggering rocks. And it's no wonder that in the Bible, God himself is described as the rock. Deuteronomy 32.4, God says he is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. God as the rock doesn't change, God as the rock doesn't move, and he is our, therefore, refuge. Psalm 18, verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. God is a solid ground on which we stand. There are plenty of things in this life which can shake us, but God can't be shaken as the rock. So if our lives are founded on him, then we too will be unmoved, unshakable. And it is in this manner that we are told to stand firm as Christians. We're not to stand firm in ourselves, in our experiences, in our feelings. We are to stand firm on the solid ground of of God and, and his word. And in this, we will not be moved. If you would turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Before we get to Philippians chapter 4 this morning, I By way of introduction, we can start with Ephesians chapter 6. We pick on Ephesians often because it is here where the Christian walk is made just so clear. Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians telling us about our salvation, all the grand truths of our salvation. There's almost no commands in Ephesians 1 through 3. It's rather reminding the church of, of our redemption, our salvation in Christ, our calling, our choosing in Christ, who died and rose to, to save us. It's just the high calling of our salvation. And so, such a high calling, that should probably change your life. It should probably affect the way you live. And so, the, the, the great hinge verse, as you know, Ephesians 4, verse 1, which says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you've been called. This is the, the familiar exhortation to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Ephesians 1 through 3, that there's your calling. And 4 through 6 is all about your conduct, your walk thereafter. 
And along this line, along these lines, rather, Paul, he really picks up on this walking metaphor to describe what the Christian life looks like after salvation. And so in Ephesians 4 through 6, five times he, he presses on this walk metaphor. We are told to walk in a worthy manner, walk in newness, walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom. But it's because Paul so diligently sticks with this walking theme and talking about the Christian life that chapter 6 really stands out because it, it is in chapter 6, that near the very end, that Paul abruptly switches metaphors from walking to standing. Now it's all about standing. So if you're in Ephesians 6, look at verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The image shifts here from completing a course to fighting a battle. And so accordingly, the metaphor shifts from walking to standing, standing firm. Even though we've been made children of of light, we still live in a dark world. The darkness closes in, it feels like. And so we're called in this regard to, to stand firm, hold your ground. Verse 12, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Got pretty serious pretty fast there, if you take it. We're engaged in a conflict, not only with with the world, but real forces of spiritual darkness, which which are behind the world, Thankfully, though, we we don't have to stand firm by ourselves, in ourselves. He said back in verse 10, we are to rely on God's strength to stand firm. We're given God's strength to enable us to stand against such forces. We're also given God's armor. And so you know the passage of the armor of God. Look at verse 13. Therefore, he says, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Well, here's another famous passage with the, the famous armor of God, a metaphor. And we learn about this pa- in this passage these various pieces of spiritual armor, and they're given to us to enable us not to walk, per se, but to, to stand, to stand firm, stand your ground, stand in the truth. Notice, though, when you really look at it closely, we won't right now, but each piece of armor really just in some way intersects or is synonymous with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The armor of God metaphor itself is really just teaching us the necessity of standing firm in the truth, the truth of the gospel, which you have to realize is what kind of a war are we in with these spiritual forces of darkness behind the war, uh, behind the world? What kind of a war is this? It's a truth war. Satan's weapon of choice since the very beginning has been what? Lies. Deception. Did God really say? Is God really good? 
he and the world are, are lofting these flaming arrows of doubt and deception at us. This is a truth war. And so if you are called to hold your ground in such a war, to stand firm in the Lord in such a conflict, what do you need? You need the truth. You need to stand firm in the truth. Specifically here, stand firm in the truth of the gospel, the good news of Christ, which states that although we are sinners worthy of judgment, Jesus has died and rose to forgive us our sins and make us righteous in him. That is the truth, right? And if you can truly live by this truth, set your mind on this truth, live this truth out each day, then you're going to stand firm. The flaming arrows, they're not going to take you down. They're not going to knock you off course. You will stand firm and press on. And I bring all this up because, well, like I said, it's in Ephesians that Paul just really elaborates on the true battle the church faces. And this is the the true battle, the truth war. But this is why also spiritual stability is so needed. Why we see emphasized over and over again in the the New Testament the need for Christians to be spiritually stable. And that's because real forces of darkness are trying to push you over, push the church over. It's like the old story of the wolf and the three little pigs. It's the, the spiritual wolves are outside crashing against the walls of the church, trying to blow the the building down, so to speak. It's like Paul warned earlier in Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 14. He said, we are to no longer uh, to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. You see, these waves are still crashing against the church, And the winds of error are still blowing against our walls. If your walk, though, is founded on your feelings or your experiences or your circumstances, it's just a matter of time before a strong enough wind comes along and and knocks you down, knocks you over. But if you're founded on the truth of God and the gospel, well, on this rock, you will stand. Now, if you get all this, then you'll get Philippians chapter 4. So now you can turn to our, our real passage for the morning in Philippians chapter 4, where we find a very similar lesson. Paul, by way of reminder, he actually wrote Philippians not long after he wrote Ephesians, both from Rome, both from his first imprisonment. They're both known as prison epistles. And the Ephesian church, similar to the Philippian church, They had much in common. They were good churches, but the darkness was starting to close in on them, and some were starting to to wobble, to shake, as if they might fall down. The Philippian church had started to run the race of faith, and were running well, but they needed to finish. They needed to stay the course. And so Paul writes along these lines. He encourages them first. God will do his part. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, He says to them, he, God, who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God, God is with you. He will help you stand. But they have to do their part, in a sense, namely to to stand firm. And they need to do so together. And so back again in chapter 1, verses 27, 28, he tells them to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you 
that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for, from God for you. Like the Ephesians, they needed to press on in their race. They needed to do so as one. This gets this is all the more important given the opponents the church has. Back in chapter 2, verse 15, Paul alluded to the opponents for the Philippian church. He said, we are to be children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you are to appear as lights in the world. The world back then, the New Testament early church, it was a crooked and perverse generation, but Christians were lights. The darkness needs the light that some might be saved. Kind of sounds like today, though, still sounds like we have a crooked and perverse generation. And if we, though, as the church of Christ, if we don't appear as lights, letting the truth at least be known and shine in the darkness, then who will? Not the spiritual forces of darkness. And so all the more so, we need to walk in the light, walk in godliness, which Paul says at the end of chapter 3, we can't walk in the world. We can't join those who live in the world, live for the world, according to the ways of the world, whose God is their appetite, he says back in chapter 3. We rather have already been made citizens of heaven. Our Lord is, is Christ. And so we are to live in a manner worthy of our calling, in a manner worthy of the gospel, in a manner worthy of our present heavenly citizenship. And with all this in mind, now we get to chapter 4. Paul's wrapping things up. But as he does in Ephesians, with this emphasis on, on our opponents, he mixes metaphors here again at the end from walking to standing. And so, same thing, chapter 4, verse 1, we need to stand firm. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. We're like bricks in the house of God. We need to be firmly packed in, leaning on one another, from which we derive our, our greater strength. How do we do this? Well, in chapter 4, Paul tells us. He says, in this way, stand firm. In what way? Well, verses 2 through 9, he shows us the way. He shows us what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord. And this way hasn't changed in 2,000 years. This is the, the only way to stand firm in the Lord. The spiritual forces of darkness paired with the world, they're still today crashing against the walls of the church, wanting nothing more than to take local church down, one after another after another. The truth war is still actively raging. And so nothing has changed here. We too still need to heed this call to stand firm in the Lord. We must do so together. How? Well, we're going to learn how. Last week, we started into this extended passage, Philippians 4, 1 through 9. And this is kind of going to be like a, a how-to message, how to stand firm in the Lord. Simple as that, really. There's many ways. Last week from verses 2 and 3, we just covered the first way, which is to be harmonious. 
And today from verses 4 and 5, we'll look at two more ways of how to stand firm in the Lord. So picking up now, number two, technically a second way from this text, how to stand firm in the Lord. Be harmonious. Secondly, be joyous. Be joyous. Kind of obvious. Verse 4 is not very long. Verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. It was customary for Paul to end his letters with like a a rapid fire salvo of final applications. And that's what we've got going on here. So right on the heels of this call to live in harmony in the Lord, we have this call to rejoice. But this one is repeated twice in a a very short span. It, It stands out. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Joy is, in fact, one of the main themes of the book of Philippians. It was actually, it's, it's known as, referred to as the epistle of joy. Paul says much about his own joy and rejoicing in the Lord, despite his terrible circumstances while writing the letter. And he urges the Philippians to do the same. So, look, it's not the first time we've seen or talked about joy in the book of Philippians. We've seen it many times before. But it might surprise you to now connect the dots with how important it is to your spiritual stability in life to actually have this joy. You can't stand firm in the way God wants you to stand firm without this joy and rejoicing in the Lord. And so Paul felt it called for to to bring it up again to remind them again to rejoice in the Lord. And for us, it bears repeating as well. So even though we've talked about this, still, let's just talk again. What is this joy? What is this rejoicing we're talking about here? This is a command. We're expected to obey this command. We're, We're told this is something we need to do. So what does that really mean? Well, I'll contend, as I've done in the past, that a distinction can and needs to be made between happiness and joy. Between happiness and joy. I think this is a legitimate distinction to make, biblically speaking. Happiness, especially today, we would associate with an emotion, a feeling. But joy is more of a state of being. It's a disposition of the soul. Why is this an important distinction to make? Well, because our society is primarily concerned with happiness. It's all about feeling good. The Bible is much more concerned with this joy, this state of joy. Now look, God obviously wants his children to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. The two are obviously related. But the the point is the Bible just keeps emphasizing that God wants us to have something much more substantial, which the Bible consistently calls joy. Our emotions can be deceptive, can be transient, but God wants us to have a joy that transcends how we are feeling. That even if you're feeling bad, you can still have joy. Now, since happiness is an emotion, it's largely tied to circumstances. And as circumstances rise and fall and come and go, well, so does your happiness. It's subjective, it's superficial. And it changes based on what's going on in your life. And people can spike between happiness and and sadness several times throughout the day. You know, you're driving to work, it starts to rain, so you're sad. Then the sun comes out, so you're happy. Then you get a flat tire, so you're sad. If someone stops and helps you, so you're happy. Then you're late to work, 
so you're sad. But your boss is even later and doesn't see you, so you're happy. And so it goes. Look, happiness is a good thing, but God wants something, like I said, more substantial, and that is joy. So I believe it's a worthwhile distinction to make. This world is fallen. We're still sinners. Sin just has consequences even in this life. And so look, although happiness is good, you're not always going to be happy in this life. Just there's too much suffering in the world and it's going to come your way. You're going to suffer. And emotionally, you're not going to be happy. It's just a matter of time. But if you don't possess this greater joy, though, it's just a matter of time before you you really sink into depression and despair. Now, I would bet in your heart you can already testify that this, this is true. So let's now talk about this biblical concept of joy that we are to have, which is what you really need. This joy, the good thing about it, it doesn't come and go with circumstances, at least as defined in the Bible, that even when times are extremely difficult, you can and you should still have this joy. There may be darkness all around you, all about, but you're supposed to have this joy within. And that's because this joy is not a feeling, it's a conviction. It's a state of being, a frame of mind. And it's not controlled by circumstances. It's controlled by the truth. This joy is an unshakable confidence that no matter what happens, you can still say, you can always say, it is well with my soul because of the truth of God. Because of the truth of God. Notice in our verse, it's short, but Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. The sphere of our joy is in the Lord. This joy only comes in the Lord. And so by definition, this joy can only be had by those who are in the Lord. Only believers, true believers, can have this joy. And that's because this joy is fundamentally tied to the truths of our salvation. What truths are we talking about here? Well, that in Christ, even though we are sinners, by faith we've been made children of God. We've been pardoned of all of our sins, totally forgiven, reconciled to God, just all by God's grace through our faith in Christ. And because of this, we can be assured that that God loves us now. He's our Heavenly Father. We've been adopted. We're safe in the love of our Creator God. And sure, bad things may still happen, but now we're even assured that our God is working them all out for our good and His glory. And on top of all this, as we learn in Philippians, we have a a heavenly inheritance awaiting us. So if that's all true, if that's really true, what do you have to worry about? You can be able, you can say that no matter what happens, even death, well, it's well with my soul. I know where I'm going. My God is good. He's in control. And you have reason to rejoice. We have life eternal. Circumstances are like sand, that they're always moving and shifting. But God, he's the rock. He doesn't move. His truth doesn't change. So if your life is built on the truth of God and and his salvation, then you always have a reason to rejoice. You might not always do it. Again, this is something we're told to do. But you have a reason. You have the capacity. Notice it says, rejoice in the Lord always always. 
It's because this joy is found in the Lord and the Lord who doesn't change that we can have this joy always. This is not a command to put on a plastic smile and to fake happiness when things are bad. It's, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to have sorrow. It's okay to be sad. That's an emotion that can't always be controlled. But even in sorrow, we're still called to rejoice, take joy, because no matter what happens in life, we still have these unalterable truths. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior? That's true for you. If you have that genuine faith, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That, that's all the reason you need to take joy. Just think about Paul in Philippians one more time. He's sitting in prison in Rome. He's awaiting trial. He could be executed unjustly. That already probably sounds worse than whatever you're going through. Also, opponents were slandering him. His friends were being persecuted. The churches were suffering. Things were bad. How does he respond, though? Well, with great joy. How? Well, because for one, he already saw how God was turning out his circumstances for the good, for the greater progress of the gospel. He says back in chapter 1, verse 12, through his imprisonment, Christ was being proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. He says in chapter 1, verse 18, he rejoices in that. And ultimately, Paul's joy was not tethered to himself or to his circumstances, but just to Christ, to possessing Christ. And so even as he was facing death, he wasn't depressed. He went on to say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 1, verse 21. He says over in chapter 2, 17, he says, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Even in the face of death, God's people are called to have joy because not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Again, this doesn't mean we don't have sorrow. Later in chapter 2, Paul mentions how Epaphroditus, he nearly died in coming to Paul. And Paul said if he died, it would have given him sorrow upon sorrow. He had joy, but it doesn't mean you don't have sorrow. And then in chapter 3, we learn how Paul, he weeps over those who have abandoned Christ. There's nothing happy about that. Like Ecclesiastes says, there's a time to weep, a time to laugh, and, and that's true. But ultimately, these circumstances didn't rob Paul of his joy because his joy was tied to the Lord. This is the cure for sorrow. So hopefully you can see how possessing this joy really comes down to your faith in God. Do you really believe in God? Do you really believe he's all good? He's all powerful? He's in control. He's working things out for your good. Don't, don't trust the lies of, of circumstances or the doubts and the deception and the truth war. Do you believe the truth that God is still on the throne no matter what you're going through? Do you trust that you're truly forgiven in Christ and redeemed and reconciled? Not because you deserve it, just it's a gift of grace. Do you believe that Jesus really died on the cross and rose from the dead 
to secure your salvation. I mean, if you really believe all this, like I said before, what's there really to worry about? Yeah, some suffering in life, even, you know, death itself, we're going to die. But even in suffering, Paul said in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So this is what rejoicing in the Lord looks like. Since this joy is tied to your faith and confidence in God, you obey this command by largely just setting your mind on things above. This is a command. You have the capacity to obey it. How do we do this? How, how do I rejoice? Since this is not a feeling, that's good news because we, we can't control our feelings oftentimes, but you can control your thoughts, what you set your mind on. So like he's going to say later in chapter 4, Dwell on things excellent. Set your mind on on things above. You have to rehearse in your mind the truth of God and let that fill you with joy. Think about Habakkuk by way of example. I'm sure you all remember the story of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. He's a prophet living in Judah in an extremely wicked time. The people were pursuing immorality, idolatry, violence, left and right, like they're It seemed like no one was left who who cared about the Lord. So Habakkuk, this righteous prophet, he cries out to God just for for help, for answers. He's like, what's going on? Where are you? Lord, why why aren't you here? Why aren't you delivering your people? Why aren't you intervening to to stop all this? Just he's he's messed up. And, And the Lord finally answers him. And God tells Habakkuk that he is going to soon intervene in the form of judgment. Judah will be judged for their unfaithfulness. They're not going to be completely wiped out, but through the Babylonians, they're going to lose everything in judgment. That's not quite what Habakkuk was wanting to hear. You could say that that's pretty depressing news on one hand, right? But how does Habakkuk respond to this news? And God says, by the way, there's no changing this. This is, this is a done deal. It's going to happen. So how does Habakkuk respond? His feelings are in the, in the dump. But listen, I'll read for you the end of Habakkuk chapter 3, where he recalls the truth to inform and to correct his feelings, to rejoice. Habakkuk 3, 16 through 19. God says this, and he says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones. And in my place I tremble because... I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. But then he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no fruit, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice and the God of my salvation, the Lord God, is my strength. And he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high places. How can he say all this? This terrible judgment was coming, couldn't be stopped. All he could do is sit and wait for his people to be wiped out. And it causes him physical distress. He says his, basically his gut churns, his heart aches. I'm sure you know that feeling. But he ultimately, though, he chooses to rest his mind 
on the truth that God is still supreme. He's still on the throne. He's in control. He's good. And somehow he's going to work this out for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And it's in these truths that his soul took joy and, and exalted and found peace. All this goes back to the truth war. We talked earlier about that warfare against the wicked world empowered by Satan. That warfare is fought between truth and lies. So just think about some of the falsehoods that try and and rob you of your joy. Think about some of the lies you believe that steal your joy. They they push you off the rock, back onto the sand, and, and take you down. Maybe you've fallen into some serious sin, and, and you hate the sin, you really do. You repent of it, maybe even you seek some counsel. But at the same time, these, these thoughts just pop into your mind, telling you, you know, God, he doesn't love you. He doesn't, he doesn't accept you. I mean, how can he? You keep on sinning, you're, you're a hypocrite. God's going to reject you. You might as well just give up now, stop running this whole Christian race thing, and just, just give in to more sin. But, Stop yourself and just think, wait, those are all lies. Those are all lies that our flesh wants us to believe. The world wants us to believe. But what, what is the truth to combat all those lies? I mean, granted, you are a sinner and God is not pleased by your sin, but what does the truth of the gospel have to say about all those lies? It says that despite your sin, Jesus, he's already died to redeem you and forgive you from all of your sin. I mean, you you know better. You know that Christ's death doesn't give you a license to sin as much as you want. But look, the gospel says that now in Christ, God's grace is greater than all of our sin. You're his child now. When, When our children sin, we don't disown them and stop loving them. And so look, when you sin, you keep on repenting. That is the right response. But don't buy into these lies which which disparage the good news. If you're in Christ by faith, you are permanently in the love of God and take joy in this. People are prone to believe lies when they go through suffering as well. Maybe you're in poverty. You don't see a way out. Maybe you have an illness. It's just not getting better. And so you can catch yourself thinking there's, just, there's nothing good left here. There's, there's nothing good about my situation. I can't see how God could possibly use this for good. Is he even there anymore? Does he even care? Maybe, I'm, not just, maybe I just, I'm just not saved because nothing's getting better. Has he forsaken me? But again, these are just simply more lies. What's, what's the truth of your situation according to the truth of God's word? Well, despite what you're going through, God, he's still good. He's still in control. He's still on the throne. He's not, he's not worried. Bad things may still happen, but look to men like Joseph or Job or Jesus. And you can see how God can work out much worse circumstances for the good, for his glory. Remember, Christ himself didn't even escape suffering. You just have to really trust. This is where the test comes in. You really just have to trust God's sovereign care. Remembering that ultimately this, this, isn't even, uh, this isn't even our home anyway. Just press on, endure, rejoicing that even though you've maybe been made to suffer a little while for now, you still have this heavenly inheritance. Just let the truth enter your mind 
and do, do warfare against the lies. And in this, you will stand firm. So be joyous. This is an essential ingredient to your spiritual stability. There are so many forces outside trying to destabilize you, knock you down, take you out of the race. But you must rest your life, your mind on the rock of God's truth and find your joy there. And remember, nothing can truly steal that joy. If you're on the rock, you're steadfast. By faith, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Be joyous. Well, to move on now, there's a third way we find in our passage to be joyous, or rather to uh, stand firm. This one's quick, though. Thirdly, lastly for today, be gracious. Be gracious. Let's switch gears now and look at verse 5. After calling us to rejoice, Paul immediately changes direction and says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Like I said, Paul tends to finish in a rapid-fire fashion. So just as quickly as he tells us to rejoice, he's already off telling us something else. And here it's a call to be gracious, to let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The meaning of this exhortation really hangs on, on this phrase, gentle spirit, which is just one word in the Greek, but the problem is there's no one English word that really covers what this word means. It has quite a range of meaning. So here's some, some synonyms that a lot of commentators give. Just give you a sense of what this means, that you're, you're gentle spirit. Some would suggest forbearance, kindness, big-heartedness, yieldedness, gentleness, reasonableness, considerateness, charitableness, mildness, generosity, graciousness. The list goes on. This word just kind of touches all those things. You get the picture, though. We're, we're being called to be, to be meek, mild, gentle. If you had to pick one word, I would go with just a graciousness, a spirit of graciousness where you show grace to others. Too often people are overly concerned with how others treat them. And when others treat you poorly, you might be quick to harshly treat them back, to respond in, in anger. But Paul's point here is you should be much more concerned with how you treat others than that necessarily how they treat you. One commentator, Hendrickson, said, The Christian is the man who reasons that it is far better to suffer wrong than to inflict wrong. The uh, ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle contrasted this word with strict justice. And that's a good picture, this, this, this word, let your gentle spirit be known to all. Just think of the exact opposite of strict justice. When someone offends you, you want to, your flesh, you want to give them justice. Make them pay as much as possible for all that they've done. This is a spirit of, of graciousness where even if you've been wronged, you cover it in love and forgiveness and you, you show grace. There's a tie in here with humility. When someone mistreats you or offends you, a self-driven pride is, is quick to kick in where you want to lash out, you want to make the other person pay. But this attitude speaks of humbling yourself where it's better to just be wronged. It's better to just trust God to right all wrongs than to lash out and to fall into sin just to, to get our way or to get back at the person. It's better to not insist on your own way. But like we learned back in Philippians 2, to treat one another as more important than yourselves. 
Remember, this is something we're called to do toward believers and unbelievers. He says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. This isn't just for the church. All people we interact with, we should deal with gently, graciously, humbly. So how gracious are you with other people? When someone sins against you, are you quick to sin right back? You let them have it right away. Or do you graciously try and cover their sin? You patiently endure whatever treatment you get. You show forgiveness. When wronged, do you wrong in return? Understand, God is calling you to reflect Christ. Even as he suffered, he uttered no threats. He did not revile in return, but just entrusted himself to a faithful creator and doing what was right. And that's what we're called to do. Say, for example, you've got a brand new car. You like to keep it looking new, so you hate scratches and nicks. That's my kryptonite, by the way. I I hate scratches and nicks on the car. And they're already nicked to shreds, so I, I have to stop caring. But pretend you've got a brand new car. You park next to so-and-so, you go to church, it's time to leave, you get back into your car. So-and-so has already left, but you found they've left you with a little present. Their passenger clearly opened up their door right into your car, and you've got a huge nick right in your brand new paint, your brand new car. It's just, you know, one of those huge dings right in the side. So seeing this, you're understandably, you're frustrated, you're upset, you're annoyed, and what should you do? You've suffered a wrong. Yeah, that's true. And part of you wants to make this person pay. Like literally, you want to make them take your car to a body shop, even though it's just a tiny nick, and just make them pay to fix it. And they have offended you. They need, they need to make it right. And you might tell them that in, a, in an angry tone. But the spirit of gentleness and graciousness would have you to maybe just overlook the offense, realizing that this person probably didn't do it on purpose, realizing that you've, likely done the same thing yourself at one point on accident and maybe you talk to the person you graciously ask them to to be more careful but at the very least you know that sin and division in the body of christ are not worth a a nick in some car paint i love how psalm 86 verse 5 puts it the same word for graciousness is used in the greek translation of the old testament and it's it's translated as ready to forgive this gentle spirit, very similar to just being ready to forgive. Not ready to make someone pay with strict justice, but yeah, you, you deal with people, they're going to offend you, just ready to forgive. Psalm 86 verse 5 says, You, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive, and abundant in loving kindness to all who call on you. Our Christian character should reflect God's character in the same manner Just we're ready, we're quick to show grace, quick to forgive. Back to this verse, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, Paul says, for the Lord is near. The Lord is near in time and space. He's present with us. Remember the promise of the Messiah is the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, which we have via the Holy Spirit. And the Lord is is near in time. That we know that Christ will return imminently, meaning any moment. And so we're called to live under that truth. Live ready for Christ to return at any moment. Live ready to go home to our heavenly inheritance. And we're called to live that way right now, though. As we saw in chapter 3, we've already been made citizens of heaven. 
And so we are to live in light of our homeland. And just think about the grace that characterizes heaven, the grace that characterizes God, the grace that characterizes the saints now. We are to live in that grace. And so how do you measure up? Be encouraged to be gracious, not exacting an eye for an eye, but treating others the same way the Lord has treated you in Christ, and that is just with mercy and love and forgiveness and grace. Even Christ, before his captors, prayed that the Lord would forgive them. This is a spirit of of graciousness. In the church especially, this spirit of, of gentleness is so vital because this is part of how we stand firm. We've learned we can't stand firm alone. We need one another. We have to come together to stand firm against the forces of darkness on the outside. But sin threatens that. It's because sin by by nature divides people, and we're still sinners in the church. So it's just a matter of time before you offend someone in this church. Someone offends you, and there's a risk of just dividing. Yeah, maybe you don't split, but there can be little rifts that form and, and division that forms. So what's the solution to that sin which so easily divides us? Uh, a little saying my old pastor said back in the day, over and over, he would keep saying, sin is the problem, grace is the solution. Just remember that. Sin is the problem, grace is the solution. Between us and God, between us and one another, sin is the problem, Grace is the solution. This is how God solved our sin problem, by showing us grace in Christ and how we are called to treat one another. I mean, just think, if you have trouble showing grace, offering forgiveness, overlooking offenses, you just have to stop and think, how does God treat you? How does he continue to deal with you as you continue to sin against him? Now, as a Christian, you know better. Yet his mercy is never-ending. His forgiveness is can't be exhausted. You can't out his grace. Now, we don't take advantage of that, but just the point is, he, he overwhelmingly shows you grace. How can you not show this little bit of grace to another who has offended you? We live by God's grace. We live in God's grace. And so let's learn to, to show that grace to others. Let your life be seasoned with grace. And you'll find harmony and joy and peace come as a result. Be joyous, be gracious. Two more ways. But in this way, the church can stand firm together as one. So let us stand firm. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we do thank you for your grace by which we have peace, by which we have joy. Lord, we've seen these calls in our passage so far to to be harmonious, to be joyous. But Lord, we would not know peace and joy in our lives if it weren't first for your grace. So we have to stop and thank you for grace. You're the God of all grace, ready to forgive, abundant in loving kindness. Thank you for sending Christ, the Savior, to die and rise that we might have life and be forgiven. You brought us into peace with yourself. You gave us the joy of salvation. And in this grace, we live in this grace, we stand. Help us, therefore, Lord, to stand firm in these truths, remembering our joy that we have in Christ and the grace we've received. Forces are still at work, some in our own flesh, some in the world, some motivated by by dark forces, Lord, trying to take us down individually as a local church, 
the church at large. It's, it's still so important that we as your bride stand firm until that day. So we pray for more grace, but help us to do our part to stand firm in these truths, remembering all we have in Christ and, and pressing on. We thank you and, and rejoice in the grace we have in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.